Amen. And that is uh, what we desire. We desire to be close to Him. He has opened up a way for us to be in relationship with the God who made all things, that we can live in relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus. And, uh, and we get to kind of maintain and continue that relationship, have communication. Every relationship requires communication. And the way we hear from God is that we open up His Word where He speaks and His Spirit continues to work. And so I invite you to open up your Bible, if you have one with you, to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first half of Daniel chapter 5 this week. Many of you have been with us most weeks throughout the summer. And just a reminder or a bit of review to help us understand the context of where we're jumping in to Daniel chapter 5 right now. We have a year that this book starts. This book starts in the year 605 B.C. The younger king of Babylon was a man named Nebuchadnezzar who was growing in power in all sorts of ways. And part of what he would do is he would militarily seek to expand his kingdom. He did so in 605 by invading Jerusalem and taking captive many of their best and brightest and taking things out of the temple of the one true God, all of this kind of stuff that he did in the year 605 B.C. Now the story zooms in a bunch of times on Daniel, the author of the book, and three of his friends. And as you do the math, it seems that Daniel and his friends were likely teenagers when they were taken out of Jerusalem and taken captive into Babylon for King Nebuchadnezzar's re-education program. Remember that from chapter 1. And then as we see continuing throughout the book, we eventually got to chapter 4 last week. And in chapter 4, we don't know the exact year of that, but it seems that it would be a time when Daniel is now middle-aged. Okay, so, so there's been a number of years between chapter 1 and chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar is still the king in chapter 4. And the proud King Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by the Most High God while Daniel is about middle-aged in some way. And he has a role to play in that process. Now, today we come to chapter 5. It's only been one week for us since we ended in chapter 4. But there's another gap of time between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar, by the time we get to chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for 23 years. We know the year again now for chapter 5. The year is 539 B.C. So if you do the math on that, it means Daniel at this point is now a man likely in his 80s. Okay, so, so we read this and we can go from chapter to chapter and it goes really quick. But we're recognizing there's a, there's a period of time here. There have been other kings now since Nebuchadnezzar. And now a new king, a king named Belshazzar, which if that name sounds familiar, you might remember that Nebuchadnezzar tried to rename Daniel. And he gave him the name Belteshazzar. Okay? It's, it's a name that refers to this god that they worshipped called Bel and being protected by that god. And so, so a very similar name. But King Belshazzar is a king who is ruling alongside the king Nabonidus. And they will be, as we find out later in Daniel chapter 5, they will be the final kings to reign in the kingdom of Babylon. So, that's where we're at. Just a little bit of, uh, I think, getting our minds around where we're at when we jump right in to reading Scripture today. Here's, here's what I think we're going to find. This is true every time you open Scripture. 
Scripture is the Word of God written to a certain people at a certain time, about a certain people at a certain time, but it's for us. And so there is application, and I think a lot of application all throughout the book of Daniel. I can't even hit it all each time we preach on a certain passage. But there's a lot of application in here for us. Because here's what I see today. You'll see this in that uh, guide in your bulletin as well. And that is this, that we all know people who right now seem to be totally content living their own life. They do what they want to do, and they're not interested in Jesus. We know people like that, right? Yet God is able to get their attention. We know that. And when He does, the question we're going to look at today is, will those of us who are His people be ready to use the gifts that He gives to point others to the truth? One of the things we're going to wrestle with as we look through Daniel chapter 5 today. So, again, if you have your Bible, I invite you to be open to Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And if you're able to, would you stand as we read the very Word of God? Let's pray first. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are not a God who hides, but a God who, nor are you a God who just made everything and then disappeared. That you're a God who has made all things, a God who sustains all things. You are the one true king. Uh, Even as as we sang earlier, we are longing for the return of King Jesus. And in the meantime, God, I pray that you would help us to see how you are at work all around us. That we would, even through taking time looking at your word today that your Holy Spirit would work in us in such a way that we would be reminded that you are a powerful God who reveals yourself, is able to get the attention of people who we think might be uh, too far gone, and that you might use us, just ordinary people, maybe not uh, not seeming to be super gifted in lots of ways, but we know that you've given gifts to your people and your intention is that we would use those gifts to build up the church and to glorify Jesus. And I pray that you'd help us to see that clearly today, how you give us opportunities uh, to use those gifts. And I pray that you would help us to see that clearly as your spirit works, as your word is read even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what God's word says. Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and have made known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. You can be seated. So we're not going to get to the interpretation until next week. This is what happened in the week before. I kind of did the intro and then Pastor Stan the next week got to get through the interpretation Next week, we'll walk through the last half of chapter 5, and you can read ahead uh, anytime you want. But verses 1 to 16 is what we'll look at today, and I'm looking forward to seeing this. Here's what we see, I think, in the first four verses. It's pretty easy to see. What we see is one final, they don't know it's going to be the final, uh, but it's one final sin-filled party for the important people of Babylon. We see that in verses 1 to 4. You heard it as I read it just a little bit ago. But it begins with King Belshazzar having made a great feast. He's making a great feast, and it seems that part of the purpose of that feast is that he would show off. He invites a thousand of his lords and drinks wine in front of the thousand. You're going to notice a couple of themes here. You're going to notice lots of people. You're going to notice lots of alcohol. And you're going to notice some sexual immorality. That's what we're going to see here. This is a, this is a party uh, for him to, to just, I guess, enjoy and show off a little bit. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Seems that he must be doing more than, I think, maybe even a little kind of tongue-in-cheek as, as the word here is he tasted the wine after he had tasted the wine. I assume there was probably more than a sip that had taken place as he gets into the party when he makes what it seems to be a very unwise decision. Uh, If his goal here is to show off to others, then this would be a way for him to do it. To show his superiority or Babylon's superiority to every other nation that they've gone to conquer. And so here's what he does. He's been drinking wine already and now he says, hey, I got an idea. Remember those vessels we took that they used in the temple of that God in Jerusalem? Let's go get those, and let's have some wine out of those cups. Right? So he sends people off, and they go get those. And so they take these vessels that were made and constructed 
for the purpose of use in the worship of the one true God. And he takes those things and has them get filled up with wine so people can get drunk out of those cups. And so he's surrounded all this time by his wives and his concubines. We won't get into detail in this setting of, of what those people are, but, but here you, you see kind of the picture of the party, don't you? And then it tells us in verse 4, they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Alcohol, sexual immorality, and idolatry is kind of what we see characterizing this party. So that's, you, you get kind of the, the picture, if you're, if you're trying to see, recognizing this is something that really happened. So trying to see what this might have looked like in the king's palace. A thousand people, important people, wives and concubines and alcohol flowing freely. Let's bring in the vessels from the temple and then let's start worshiping and praising the gods of gold and silver and wood and iron and bronze and stone. Okay, Lots of idolatry taking place. And before we move on and see how the mood suddenly changes, at least for some of the people, I want to just pause and recognize something. I want to pause and recognize that, that these things that we see in verses 1 to 4, that's not like just characteristic of ancient Babylon. The things we see in verses 1 to 4 are things that we see in Iowa Falls in 2019, right? Back then, people liked to party. Right now, you know what people like to do? They like to party, right? But why is it? And you could give all sorts of different reasons. People have different reasons for turning uh, to, to some sort of distraction in their life, like a party where there's sexual immorality and alcohol is flowing freely. One, it might just be we're bored. I remember that being the thing, like when I grew up in a small town, other teenagers were like, hey, there's nothing else to do. And because there's nothing else to do, let's go get drunk, right? Uh, and so, so, so parties happen uh, because... Because there was nothing else to do. That's, that's maybe one reason. Uh, I think parties also happen, especially like in college. You know, it's kind of like this assumption that once you're in college, that's what college students do. They go party, pretending like there's not going to be consequences, like, oh, that's just a phase. And so, so you do that during college, and then there's not going to be consequences after. I came across this quote from Charles Spurgeon this week. He said, if young men knew the price of sin, they would not be so hot to purchase pleasurable moments at the price of painful years, okay? Acknowledging that, 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 that decisions made like, oh, this feels like this is what I would want right now, uh, that, that if you give in to that, that might give you a pleasurable moment, but there might be a price to pay for painful years after that, right? So, so it doesn't matter phase of life. Adults, right? It's not like people give this stuff up when they become adults, how many people that you work with that part of their conversation as the weekend draws near is they just can't wait. And then on Monday, what are they talking about? They're talking about what they drank and what they did when they drank and who they drank with, right? So, so it's not like, oh, this is what they used to do in ancient Babylon. They used to kind of just go to these parties and, and all sorts of, you know, messed up stuff happened as a result. And idolatry? Idolatry is not just something that happened in ancient Babylon. Does idolatry happen today in our day as well? It certainly does. We see it in many different forms. 
Greed is a form of idolatry. People who, who just long for things and stuff and are willing to kind of run over anybody necessary to get there. So, so, so we see, I just don't want us to quickly go through verses 1 to 4 and be like, oh, yeah, that's those, those ancient people, they, they, they were very different from us. Not really, right? Not really. The, the root cause of all of this is just a desire for sin. I want to do what I want to do. I want to do what feels good to me, I wanna, right? Just in the moment. And so that's what's happening. That's the setting of Daniel chapter 5. Big party. All right. Idolatry in many forms. But I want to continue and see how this party gets interrupted. The, the mood. Maybe you've been at a place before uh, where, where, where there's a large crowd and there's kind of a, a buzz and then something happens and all of a sudden the mood just changes. Okay? That, that's what's happening here in Daniel chapter 5. In the midst of this party, here is what takes place. Verse 5 tells us this. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Okay, so, so this is really happening in the king's palace. I wonder if the king didn't wonder, like, maybe I've just had one too many. Uh, you know, like, I, I see a hand right now writing something on the wall. Is this really happening? And, and as this happens, it tells us in verse 6 what the king's reaction is. The king's reaction is his color changes. I assume he goes pale, Right? And then it says, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. That's a lot of descriptions about the king's reaction. So, so this wasn't just like the king didn't just shrug his shoulders at this. This is something that has an effect on his body even. His limbs give way, right? His knees are knocking together, his color changed, his thoughts are alarming him. Uh, Rembrandt did a, 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 a painting of this in the 1600s. And I don't know if you can see it very well. Maybe not uh, from where you're at. But, it, but if you look at that painting, uh, I like just kind of looking at how he was seeing this. The painting is called Belshazzar's Feast. And, and so you see the king who was probably seemingly in control. You know, go get those things out of the temple, telling people what to do. All of a sudden, he's kind of leaning back. You see how he's leaning back? And I see how everybody else's eyes in that painting just wide open. Like, what is going on here? Suddenly, the mood of the party has changed a bit. The DJ hits pause on the music and the disco ball stops spinning because something's going on that isn't normal, right? So the party, maybe at least in the front, you know, if there's, if there's this many people, maybe not everybody even notices what's going on. But certainly people around the king recognize there's something going on here. And the king, his color's changing, thoughts alarming him, limbs giving way, knees are knocking together. Oh, he's got to figure out what's going on. So he calls loudly to bring in the enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. We saw this with Nebuchadnezzar as well, right? Nebuchadnezzar had these people in his kingdom that had special gifts and training that they would interpret things that the king knew. The gods must be trying to say something. I don't know what they're trying to say. These are the experts that... And so we saw Nebuchadnezzar have a couple of different dreams that Daniel was brought in to interpret. Now, in this case, it's a writing on the wall that Belshazzar doesn't understand. So he says, bring in the experts. 
And he makes some promises. If you do this, here's what you're going to get in return. But the result, much like those people when they came in to try and instruct or help out or interpret for King Nebuchadnezzar, the result is they can't do it. They can't give him the interpretation. They can't even read the words, right? So they're of no help. These, again, well-trained experts who have all sorts of experience. This is what they get paid to do, and they can't do it. And so this isn't going to make the king feel good, right? And so it says in verse 9, The king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So it's not just him now, it's other people. We, what's going on? God has gotten the attention of not just one man, but a number of people that were gathered for this sin-filled party. Party filled with all sorts of idolatry, and all of a sudden, God has the attention of a number of people. What's going to happen? God has gotten their attention. And how did God get their attention? Not, not a dream to one man this time, but to words written. So God speaks through words written by a human hand on a wall. Point of application before we move on. Would you say, or do you believe, that God still gets the attention of all kinds of people through His written word? I would say... Just from personal experience, yes. Because it was about 20 years ago that this arrogant, sinful man opened up the Word of God to Psalm 130 and recognized my own sin and wretchedness before God. And God got my attention with His Word. How about you? Do you believe that God still gets the attention of people, all kinds of people, through His Word? You know, the Bible sometimes gets reduced to like a, like a cute little book with inspirational sayings. There's some in there. But you know what there's also a lot of in the Bible? There's a lot of warnings that sound pretty dire, that sound pretty scary. And I, for one, am thankful that God's Word contains warnings. God's Word is filled with wake-up calls to people living in sin. Now, we could look all over the place at a number of them, but I want to focus in on one of those as we look at some application of this passage today. Does God still get the attention of sinners by using written words of warning? Yes. Here's one spot. Go ahead, if you have your Bible with you, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, God's Word says this, Or do you not know, listen to this warning, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, see, assumption probably was for these people, as it is in our day, that when we die, we go to a better place. Everybody who at least tried to be good gets to go to a better place when they die. That's the common assumption in our day. 
But God's word gives a warning saying, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then it gets even more specific. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is a gracious warning from God. It's saying that there is something that you desire that you will not receive if this is your status, if you are counted among the unrighteous. Now, he has a list of sins in our human nature. As we look at that list of sins and we pick out the one or two that we don't commit, and we say, yeah, see, see, it's those people. Those people need to hear this. And while, well, well, maybe you can look at that list and say, not every one of those applies to me. Fine, you're probably right. But does at least one of those apply to us? Yeah. And at least one of those applying to us is all it takes. How many of us are idolaters? How many of us are guilty of loving a thing or, or a person or whatever more than we love God? Right? And so, so we are counted among the unrighteous. That is, those who sin before God. Those who have offended God. Who have not lived according to the law of God. That's all of us. Right? And so I am thankful that God gives warning. It's not unloving for God to give a warning. Right? Parents, we know this. It's not unloving. We, we give our kids warnings because we love them. Right? So you might have said to your kids, hey, listen, we're, I told you earlier that we're going to Dairy Queen tonight. But if you continue to pick at each other, we will not be eating ice cream tonight. Right? That, that's, a, that's a loving warning. Here's something. You probably didn't deserve going to Dairy Queen in the first place. Right? But, but I love you, and so I'm giving you this opportunity, yet... Here you go, just continuing to fail to love one another. And so the consequence for that, I'm just giving you a warning. If this continues, if you continue in that, we will not be getting ice cream. That reward will not come to you. Right? It's loving to give warnings. And so we read verses 9 to 10. Now, now let me let me just acknowledge, I want to read verse 11, because some of you are like, come on, get to verse 11, I'll get there, okay? But I want to acknowledge this, that when it comes to warnings, we have options, right? When you hear a warning from somebody, we have options as to how we're going to deal with that warning. This is an option, isn't it? That we can ignore the warning and keep living how we're living. Is that not an option when you hear a warning? This is whether any kind of warning, especially a warning from the Word of God. You can just ignore it. Pretend that you've never heard that warning. Pretend that God doesn't exist. Keep living like you're living. Are there people that do that? That yes, God has given warnings, but they're, they're, they're ignorant of or choose to ignore warnings in God's Word. Yes. Another option. You can justify yourself and just keep living how you're living. You can figure out ways to explain it away. 
right? The kids in that situation I was describing, they might do that. They might kind of, well, here, I can pass some blame to somebody else. I can look at the technicalities of that warning. I can explain that, well, this was for them then. It's not really for us now. So so he means a different thing when he, explain it away so you can just keep living the way you want to live. That's one of your options, isn't it? When we hear a warning from God's word. Another option when we hear a warning from God's word is to try to live on the fence. This was the option that I took before God saved me. I, I knew what was right, and I felt guilty when I did what was wrong, but not guilty enough to repent and turn from it. I just wanted to walk the fence so I could be this kind of guy with these kind of people, and I could be this kind of guy with these kind of people, thinking, thinking I could just kind of forever walk on a fence without getting impaled, right? That was, that was me, and that's an option that a lot of people take. When it comes to hearing a warning, you know, I think a reason that God gives us warnings is that we would take option D. Okay, I don't think any of these options are good so far. But option D, we're given warnings in Scripture so that we might repent and turn to Jesus. This is a lie of the enemy that we can figure out somehow how to, how to walk on the fence or justify ourselves. You know our memory verse for this week? Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A lot of times that looks like just kind of little subtle lies that help you to believe this, this lie that like, I'm getting away with this. Right? That there's a warning but nothing bad's happened to me so far, so I'm going to keep living the way I'm living. I'm going to keep walking on the fence, whatever it might be. But God's desire is that we would not keep living the way we're living and not live, walk on the fence, but that we would repent and turn to Jesus. To not believe the lies of the enemy, but to believe the truth that Jesus came to die for our sin. So that when we put our faith in Him, we are justified. So, so He says the unrighteous will not Inherit the kingdom of God? So that means if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, if you want to be with Him forever, living in His kingdom forever, you must be righteous. Well, that's not me, and that's not you. Who is the only righteous one? Jesus. And so the word justified, we read that in Scripture, the word justified means declared righteous. All who put their faith in Jesus, by God's grace alone, those who trust in Jesus are justified or declared righteous. They are now fit for the kingdom of God, not because of their own works, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. And so, when you repent and trust in Jesus, here's the good news. The rest of that passage, verse 11, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, Paul's writing to believers. He's saying, here's the warning, but at some point in your life you heard that and you've turned away from that life of continuing to live in idolatry. And you've now turned away from that. And you have been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified God, your judge, has declared you righteous based on the perfect record of His Son, Jesus. All because you've trusted in Him. This is the purpose of warnings in Scripture. God has given a warning to, I should say that's one of the purposes of warnings in Scripture. There's other ones as well. 
But let's go back to Daniel chapter 5, where we see God giving a warning in writing to Belshazzar. But here's the problem. Belshazzar doesn't know what it says. He needs someone else to come and to read it to him and interpret it for him. He doesn't get it. There's writing. God's saying something. God's gotten his attention, but he doesn't know what it is that God's saying. And so somebody else needs to come along and explain. And so in Daniel chapter 5, we're told of Daniel, how he now, again, presumably now in his 80s, he's remembered. Now, over and over again, you're going to see the language in here, Father. Belshazzar and and the queen are going to emphasize your father, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, now thinking about just the, the timeline, they're using father in the sense that like, uh, like, you know, like Father Abraham. So this is our father, like our forefather. This could be grandpa, great-grandpa, something like that. So it wasn't literally like son-father relationship, right? Um, but your father, he's trying to kind of, because Nebuchadnezzar was the most well-known and powerful king of Babylon, they want as much connection with him as possible. So let's call him father, right? And the queen remembers this man. So the problem is, God's got their attention. He's trying to say something, but they don't get it. And so he's perplexed. The lords are perplexed. His color has changed. His knees are knocking. What are we going to do? And the queen hears that the king is struggling. And so she comes into the banqueting hall, and she says, I remember somebody. I remember the stories of this guy named Daniel. He worked for King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, and he's still around. He's old now, right? But, he, but he's still around. And so, so she doesn't just remember him. She recommends, go get Daniel. Somebody go get Daniel, and he'll interpret this for you. And then Daniel was brought in before the king. Now, I, I think this might be still in the same context of the party, right? Maybe it's later, but it sure seems like this is all in the same period of time, right? And so, so just thinking about this for a moment, just think of this scene. Daniel wasn't at the party to start out with, right? This is not the kind of party that Daniel would be hanging out at, right? A man in his 80s uh, who was a faithful, holy servant of the one true God is not hanging out at the party where there's all sorts of sexual immorality, alcohol is flowing freely, idolatry is being practiced, but he gets invited into that. He gets called by the king. You've you got to come. I've got to talk to you about something. There's a writing right here. You've got to tell me what it means. I, I assume Daniel was a bit uncomfortable being called into this situation. But Daniel is brought in before the king, and the king gives Daniel kind of this, here's my problem and here's my promise. Okay? The problem is there's this writing, and I need to know what it says, but I don't know what it says. And if you can tell me, then all this stuff goes to you. Now, I told Pastor Stan as we looked at this passage a little bit together this week, I said, you know, I, at first as I was kind of reading this in my head, I'm kind of picturing this very, like, you know, I've got it all together kind of kingly voice of like, you know, uh, I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the right, you know, but then I'm recognizing, so this is probably like towards the end of the party, and he's been drinking a lot of alcohol, uh, and he's scared. And so this might be a little more like, and if you can do it, you got gold around your neck, you got a robe, and you're going to be third in the kingdom, right? Uh, it might sound a little more like that. He's making these kind of promises to Daniel. Daniel, I, 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 here's what you get 
if you can do what I'm asking you to do. I'm sure an uncomfortable spot for Daniel to be put in. But God was at work. God was seeking to reveal something through a warning written on a wall to this powerful king. And Daniel is brought in. Now, next week, we're going to continue with this, and we're going to get to see a little bit of how God's going to use Daniel in this situation. But I want to have two quick points of application to close out today. And one is this. Most of us don't have a lot of access to people who are very prominent. Okay, So Daniel was unique. So many of the people who were faithful to the one true God in the year 539 B.C., they didn't have access to the king of Babylon. Daniel did. Most of us don't have a lot of access. In Iowa Falls, Iowa, we might have some sort of connections. Maybe you have this story of how you met this celebrity one time or, or this politician one time. Most of us don't have the kind of relationship, though, where they're coming to us for stuff. But the reality is that whether it be in politics or whether it be in Hollywood or whether it be in sports, there are people that have a great influence on our culture that are not believers, but there are people in their lives who are believers. So I think one thing we can just do as an application from this, we need to pray for people who have opportunity to influence prominent people. We're told, Paul told Timothy this. He said, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. We need to be praying for those people. And one of the ways that we pray for those people is pray that other believers that are around those people would have a godly influence on them in some way. Okay? So that's just one quick point of application. But the second one is what I want to close with. And that is recognizing this. That God has given you a gift. If you are someone who has heard the good news of Jesus, you've repented of your sin and you've put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit now dwells in you, and that Holy Spirit has given you a gift, and God gives us gifts in order that we might use them to build up the church and to bring glory to Jesus. Pastor Stan used the phrase earlier today, to make much of Him. God gives us gifts that we might make much of Him. Right? And so God has given you a gift if you're a believer. Now, if you're wondering, like, what, so what is it? I don't know. Like, for some people, that's obvious. And maybe you've taken one of those spiritual gift inventories. I think those things are maybe kind of helpful. Uh, not, not totally. Uh, but here's what I think. I think if you would just maybe talk to another believer... And maybe do some reflection and do some prayer and read through the list of spiritual gifts. So I put some in your application guide there. You can read through those lists this week and just be asking God, God, what, what do I enjoy? Because I think the, the gifts that God gives us, we enjoy when we use those. So what kind of stuff do I enjoy? What have other people told you that you're good at? Like, like you've seen God use you in the lives of other, God, other people have told you you're good at this. Well, what is that? It might be the gift, that, or, or another way to find out the gifts you have is to recognize that, hey, there's needs, and I'm going to do what I can to meet those needs, and I might find in the course of trying to meet those needs that I found a gift that I have. Didn't even know I had it, right? I mean, the first time I got to, to stand up in front of people and teach the Bible, that wasn't like, oh, I, I, I feel like I'm doing this because I took a spiritual gift inventory and it told me to go do that. 
No, I just had an opportunity, and I did it, and I enjoyed it. And so I wanted to do it again, right? So that's, I think, often the way God works. God has given us a gift, and then the next thing we need to do is to be available to use our gifts as God provides opportunities. God was providing Daniel. Remember, it was in chapter 1 that God gave Daniel this gift. We saw God give Daniel an opportunity to use it in chapter 2 when he was still young. We saw God give him an opportunity to use it again in chapter 4 when he was probably middle-aged. And now, in chapter 5, God's giving him another opportunity to use this gift when he's an older man in his 80s. Right? God gives opportunities for us as his people to use the gifts that he's given us. And so, just quick application for us. What gifts has God given you and how are you using them to serve and to build up the church? A number of you have found that niche and you've been doing it maybe for a long time. We're going to start Sunday school again soon. We're going to start Awana again soon. And you're like, this is what God has called me to. He's gifted me for this. This is a need in the church and I'm going to do it. Others of you, you're still, you know, trying to figure out. And one of the ways you figure out is you try some stuff, right? And so, so I think it looks like this week you spending a little bit of time on your own uh, or maybe with some people who know you well, having that kind of discussion. Again, stuff in your application guide there. But I don't mind if, if I got people lining up at my door this week. And so like Pastor Stan and I, we both have people knocking on the door. Hey, I think I have this gift. How can I use it to serve? Like we're fine with that, right? We're fine with that? Yeah, we're fine with that. Right? Come knocking. Call us. Text us. Whatever. We, we want to fi- help people find ways to use the gifts that God gives you. And sometimes the opportunities come not when you are like did an inventory and signed up for something. It comes when somebody else calls. Like when King Belshazzar's people come and say, Hey, Daniel, come to this party. We need you. <laughs> to what? For what? But he's ready and available to use the gift that God's given him at the time that he's called to do it. That's why we chose this as our memory verse for this week. This, this idea of always being prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. We want to be prepared. We want to be ready so that when we're called upon, we're ready to use the gifts that God has given. And we do that because we're people who have received God's grace in so many ways. So we're going to close by singing the song, All I Have is Christ. And as we sing that, it's a song, like it's a, it's a testimony kind of song. It's a personal song saying, this is where I would have been, this is where I was, and this is what Christ has done. Therefore, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, right? And I I sing this song, and I love singing this song because it reminds me of where I was. I once was lost in darkest night. I thought I knew the way. Like King Belshazzar, thinking he has it all together, but then all of a sudden, God does something. In Psalm 130, like I mentioned earlier, that was the one that God used to get hold of my heart. It says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of wrongs, O Lord, who could stand? That gripped my heart. Thinking about my record. God, if you kept a record, how could I stand before you? How could I think for a moment that that I've done enough to please you, that you now are satisfied with me? Good job, Jeremy. Pat him on the back. No. I once was lost in darkest night. I thought I knew the way, but the sin that promised joy in my life was leading me to the grave. Right? And my only hope is that Jesus came and he saved me. This is our hope. 
I think Pastor Stan mentioned, if you just need prayer for something, something going on in your life, you need prayer just saying, hey, today is the day that I repent and put my faith in Jesus. I've had all sorts of other kind of ways that I've tried to deal with the options before me, but I I want to repent and trust in Jesus. Come and pray with the people here afterwards. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll sing together. Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you that when we did not love you, but we, like the people at Belshazzar's party, were loving all sorts of other things other than you, that you loved us enough to send your Son while we were yet sinners. And if you had not loved us first, we would refuse you still. We would keep doing things our own way because we think we're right most of the time. But Father, I thank you for your grace in giving us warnings. And I thank you for your grace that for all who repent and trust in Jesus, we we now have Christ. We have your spirit living in us. We have gifts that you've given us. And I pray that we might use them being ready this week in whatever situation you put us in, that we might proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. In Jesus' name, amen.